From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. While it often starts with a tremor in one hand, Parkinson's is a progressive disorder of the nervous system which can restrict mobility and make daily activities increasingly difficult. April is Parkinson's Awareness Month. We'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. I see a lot of folks that I've followed for, you know, 15 years, 20 years, and they're not necessarily doing fabulously, but, you know, they're still active and they're engaged in lives. They almost live out their normal lifespan. Also on the program, treatment options for carpal tunnel syndrome and how starting hospice care earlier rather than later can benefit patients and their families. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Parkinson's disease. It's a progressive disorder of the nervous system that affects mainly movement. It develops gradually, sometimes starting with a barely noticeable tremor of one hand. And we all probably know someone who has or had Parkinson's disease. And it's really, it's difficult to watch when it happens. And in fact, one of my mentors, one of my very good friends, died of Parkinson's disease at a relatively young age. And it was difficult for all of us to watch. While there's no cure, treatment can help effectively manage the symptoms. And April is Parkinson's Awareness Month. So here to discuss Parkinson's disease is Mayo Clinic neurologist, Dr. Eric Alskog. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Alskog. Good to see you. Hello, Tracy and Tom. How are you? Oh, it's so good to see you, especially at this time of year when it's Parkinson's Disease Awareness Month. I know that you have been at this for 30 years, maybe 30 years plus now. What, what's been the most satisfying part of, of caring for patients with Parkinson's? Well, I, I think one thing that I realized was that with optimum treatment, people can do a lot better than one might think. If you read newspapers and magazines and watch TV, you think that everybody ends up like that unfortunate Muhammad Ali. He had a very unusual disorder. He should not be regarded as the prototype of typical Parkinson's disease. I see a lot of folks that I've followed not just for years, but now for, you know, 15 years, 20 years. And they're not necessarily doing fabulously, but, you know, they're still active and they're engaged in lives and uh, it's not that they're getting around in wheelchairs. They have deficits. But, you know, in Olmsted County, Minnesota, they almost live out their normal uh, lifespan. Is that right? In fact, the projections are, the latest is that they live one year short of their actuarial projections. So that's impressive. What has happened in those 30 years, or however many years you want to put it, that the treatment has changed or the treatment has improved to um, improve the quality of life? Well, it's an interesting story. You know, levodopa. Levodopa is a precursor to dopamine. Dopamine is a brain neurotransmitter. Arvid Carlson won the Nobel Prize in the 1960s for recognizing that brain dopamine levels are low in Parkinsonism. He had animal models of that. He could deplete dopamine. Animals would look Parkinsonian. Recognition was if we replenish dopamine, we can reverse a lot of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So dopamine given by mouth or IV cannot get into the brain. But if you give the immediate precursor, that is a substance that is natural but one step removed, which is levodopa, the brain uh, receives that because it's transported into the brain and the brain manufactures dopamine out of that. 
That was a, a huge discovery, and it was FDA approved in 69. That isn't quite the end of that story. A lot of people were nauseated, and it took a zillion milligrams of levodopa to do any good. So scientists, this is really a clever uh, recognition that scientists made. They recognized that levodopa, before it got into the brain, was being converted to dopamine. And there are two bad consequences of that. Number one, there's a blood-brain barrier, and dopamine cannot get into the brain. Couldn't be transported. So it did take a zillion milligrams to get in there. But it's not entirely true it couldn't get into the brain, that is the dopamine. It crossed into the nausea and vomiting center where there is no blood-brain barrier. So everybody oh was gosh. nauseated and a lot of people were vomiting. So scientists designed another product called, in this country, Carbidopa in Europe, Bensericide, does one thing. Can't cross into the brain, and it blocks the conversion of levodopa to dopamine by blocking one enzyme. So the standard of treatment for the past 40-some years has been carbidopa levodopa. The original brand name attached to that by the company Merck, Cinnamon. And so those of you that were in, in Catholic grade school recognize Cinnamon without emesis, without vomiting. Oh, and no, that's, that's where that's the name the came from. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And so that's been the standard of treatment. Now, what, what was recognized early on was that uh, a lot of patients became like brittle diabetics. You know, there are a lot of ups and downs and fluctuations. And, and you know, it really took, uh, I think, savvy clinicians a while to figure out that these things can be managed. And it does take a lot of investment in that. And this in this current era... Savvy clinicians, I think, do the best managing Parkinson's disease with carbidopa levodopa alone. And we should mention to, that, to our audience that if you want the Bible on the treatment of Parkinson's disease, it's Dr. Alskog's book, second edition. It's called The New Parkinson's Disease Treatment Book. But actually everything that I know about Parkinson's disease, they tried to put in there, and I tried to make it readable. So I, hopefully it's a useful book for people. That was the intent. So when someone comes in, and uh, we'll talk about how you make the diagnosis, but how do you explain the disease to the patient and their family? Well, I start off by talking about dopamine, because that's a fundamental substrate for what is the visible evidence of Parkinson's disease. There are things that we know now occur in sort of a subtle way, in not all people, but years before, acting out your dreams. That's called REM sleep behavior disorder. People who are constipated in midlife have a greater risk of developing Parkinson's disease. Really? People who have been anxious uh, are at a greater risk of later developing Parkinson's disease. Sometimes loss of sense of smell is an early marker. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who has been constipated or anxious gets Parkinson's disease, but it's now recognized that there is a significant increase in that risk if you have those problems. So those probably are early forerunners of Parkinson's disease, but they fly under everybody's radar screen. What really then becomes recognizable would be slowness of movement, shuffling gait, stoop posture, loss of animation, loss of arm swing, and then some non-motor symptoms, too, that actually still don't get recognized. Anxiety, common problem of Parkinson's disease, even though it's not visible. Insomnia is another one. Uh, I mentioned uh, acting out your dreams. Well, uh, getting to sleep is a problem if you have Parkinson's disease as well, too. 
And uh, so those are things that are so-called non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. But what really brings it into evidence would be shuffling gait and things like that. It, tremor. Is that tremor frequent? Well, it occurs in 80% of people, but in 20%, you never see tremor. Is it that tremor or shuffling that help you diagnose a patient then, or how do you ultimately diagnose them? Well, you take all these symptoms and signs, and you can put them together in any package. So some people shuffle, some people don't. Some people shuffle with one leg, you know, they have a stiff leg. Mm -hmm. uh, some people have facial masking, you know, loss of facial animation, some don't. There are occasional people I'll see where anxiety is in spades, panic attacks, and, uh, and yet the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease are fairly minimal. And if you look at what goes on in the brain with this dopamine loss, it isn't uniform. You know, the, you'd think something like this, it should be everywhere the same, but it's very patchy loss. So in one person, it's a little more here, a little less there, and the next person, it's an entirely different uh, sort of a random pattern of that dopamine system. This is a clinical diagnosis. You don't have any help from a blood test or a brain scan, correct? Or It is a clinical diagnosis. So it, it's what people tell you and then what you see in the clinic. There are occasional people I see who are on treatment and doing well, and then I go by what they report pre-treatment. Because a lot of times that what I mentioned, the carbidopa levodopa, gets people almost to normal. I saw somebody yesterday who was normal. Wow. Incredible. So it's, it's probably uh, appropriate to say that you have made huge progress in the treatment of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease over the past 30 years. Well, we have, and I think it really gets down to uh, the discovery of levodopa, then the discovery of carbidopa in this country and benzeroside in Europe, so then that makes it tolerable. And then I think what's changed uh, has also been the recognition of how to treat it. There's sort of a side story here. You know, doctors were always looking for something better and better. So they started digressing, looking for other drugs. And and I've been, you know, I'm 100% in the clinic all day, every day. And I've tried all these other drugs. <laughs> and they really come up short. And I realized some years ago, you've got to get the carbidopa levodopa dosing scheme right. And it's a little bit of a dynamic, too. It changes over time. You know, people are stable for a number of years, and then they become... Uh, uh, tied to each dose that they take. So they'll take a dose of carbidopa levodopa, then they're good for a few hours, and it wears off. So you have to match not only have, not only have to get the right dose, but you have to get the right dosing interval. And there's a lot of flexibility there. So I tell people, do not worry about the number of doses or tablets per day. Find the dose that works the best, and then you adjust the dose to match the response duration. And you, all of your experience, I'm sure, helps also. Neurologist Dr. Eric Alskog, also author of the book, The New Parkinson's Disease Treatment Book. Time for a short break, but when we come back, we'll talk more about the treatment of Parkinson's disease, also about the latest research, and why Awareness Month for Parkinson's disease is important. But when we come back, myth or matter of fact... People who have a high IQ are at an increased risk for Parkinson's disease. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is Dr. Eric Alskog. He's a neurologist and an expert on Parkinson's disease at the Mayo Clinic and also author of the book, The New Parkinson's Disease Treatment Book. And really, it's the Bible for mm -hmm. people with Parkinson's disease. All right, myth or matter of fact. I'm really interested in this one. <laughs> Myth or matter of fact, Dr. Alskog, people who have a high IQ are at an increased risk 
for Parkinson's disease. Is that a myth or a matter of fact? Well, I don't know about any data on IQ, and most of us don't get our IQs measured, so it would be hard to know. But it I'm is sure true. ours is high, though. Well, well measured or not. Huh? Don't put me in on this. You're <laughs> the one who said, where did you hear this? All right. Well, I did hear at one time that the population that had the highest risk for Parkinson's disease was physicians. And of course, I immediately assumed uh, that it was people with high IQ. You're no, and that might have been in there too, but <laughs> that's what brought the whole issue up. And, and I'm not sure. So I wanted to ask it well, because let me doctors ch- are at increased risk. Let they? me say this, myth or matter of fact, doctors are at an increased risk for Parkinson's. Well, that is true based upon Olmsted County patients who are followed here at the Mayo Clinic and Olmsted Medical Center. And so it's sort of a captive audience. You know, once you move to Rochester, Minnesota, you never want to leave. <laughs> I want to live in Florida when I grew up, and I've been here 38 years. So that's that's a different side story. Why you got hooked. Yeah. But point of fact, it is true that in Olmsted County, when when the, the group here in epidemiology looked at professions that were associated with Parkinson's disease. Physicians rose to the top there. That's the group that was the most likely to be uh, diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. So intuitively, you might say that, well, maybe it's just because they recognized it and made the diagnosis themselves. But there was another study done on something called incidental Lewy body disease. So it turns out that about 15 people out of 100 who are over the age of 60 and die without Parkinsonism, tremor, dementia, or any neurologic problems, on post-mortem brain examination will have the microscopic marker of Parkinson's disease, which is Lewy bodies. And it turns out that uh, among those incidental Lewy body cases, there were about 36, I think, 30-some that in our cohort here, and it turned out that, guess what profession rose to the top? Physicians again. So that wasn't a diagnostic kind of confounding factor. These were people that they knew they were physicians, but they didn't know they had Lewy bodies. So your suspicion isn't so much that this is a bunch of smart people, like Dr. Shives would like to believe, (laughs) but that maybe uh, something of the lifestyle of physicians are what contributes to that? Yeah, that's a $64 question. Could be exposures. We were talking earlier about maybe it's that some physicians never slept during the previous era. You know, now there are rules, rules and regulations. Yeah, now. there are. So there's Guidelines. some limitations. But I described how when I was a medical intern, you know, working 110-hour weeks for two months in a row was actually it was expected. And that's one of the ways that you clear bad breakdown products, protein products, that are like beta amyloid and Alzheimer's disease, alpha-synuclein and Parkinson's disease, there is good scientific evidence that when you're asleep, the areas around the brain cells dilate and you kind of tend to flesh out those bad things that don't belong there. So oh, I, you're serious about this? That I'm, maybe perfectly lack of serious. Wow. I'm perfectly serious about that, yes. It was published in Science Magazine, which is, I mean, one of the most reputable scientific publications in the world. I mean, this, this is the how you get rid of some of these bad products in your brain. Well, the interviews that we've done in the past that talk about the genetics piece and the telomeres on the ends of those gene codes, that sleep is one of the things that helps to protect and restore that. So it would make sense that if you're going periods of time with very inadequate sleep, that it would end up doing some sort of cellular damage. Yeah, and apart from the telomeres, you know, the the thought about what causes all of these midlife neurodegenerative disorders, from Alzheimer's disease to ALS to uh, various forms of dementia and Parkinson's disease, there's a protein, at least one, in Alzheimer's there's two, that seems to be the bad actor. And these are natural proteins that are in all brain cells, so beta amyloid and tau and Alzheimer's disease, 
alpha-synuclein and Parkinson's disease. These belong there. They have a purpose in the brain cells, but it seems that they dissociate from where they should be. They aggregate, and then they sort of gum up the work, so to speak. So you want to get rid of those. You know, there's a, there's a natural turnover of products everywhere in the body. You make them, and you dispose of them. And in the in terms of alpha-synuclein for Parkinson's disease, you probably want to get rid of all that bad alpha-synuclein that's now starting maybe to gum up the works. So during sleep, maybe that's one of the factors. These things, these diseases, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, they're very complicated, however. Probably there are many factors that weigh into this, but I think that's one plausible component of that. One interesting thing about uh, uh, Parkinson's, I know that age is the the biggest risk factor. The older you are, the more likely you are to get it. But there there are young people who get Parkinson's disease, right? What's the youngest person you've ever seen? Twenties. Uh, if you if you get Parkinson's disease before age forty, then you have an increased risk of having a detectable gene. If it's before age twenty, then it's very likely. There are three known genes called the Parkinson gene, Pink One, and DJ One. So that's that's the only population of patients where I would I would measure a gene product to see if there's a genetic underpinning. For folks that get it at a normal age, the likelihood that you're going to detect something isn't very great. There's what is that age? The normal age. Well, what's the usual age? Well, it kind of peaks in 60s and 70s, and kind of depends on, on how you look at it. Maybe it continues to go up. In Olmsted County, it looks like it continues to increase. But it's, it's rare, certainly rare before age 40. In Olmsted County, less than 1% of our incident population developed it before age 40, less than 1%. And then as you continue, increase the age, and it becomes more and more likely. All right, it's Parkinson's Disease Awareness Month. Why is that a good thing for you and for the population in general? Well, I think funding for research would certainly be one important aspect of this. You know, it's it, these neurodegenerative conditions, they're, they're affecting more and more of the population because we're, we're getting older, and stuff happens when you get older. And for just like Alzheimer's disease, which has gotten a lot of press, we don't have any ways of curing this. Fortunately, in Parkinson's disease, we have pretty good but not perfect symptomatic treatment, but that's not fabulous forever. So we need to figure out how to get at the cause of this, and that takes a lot of research and some time and and money to fund it. Thanks so much for sharing your expertise with us. Parkinson's expert, Dr. J. Eric Alskog, author of the book, The New Parkinson's Disease Treatment Book. It is the Bible. Thanks again, Dr. Alskog. Okay, thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about the latest treatment options for carpal tunnel syndrome. And later on the show, how hospice care can benefit the whole family. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Honey, maple syrup, molasses, they're all more natural sugars, and they're all fine to use in a limited quantity. But Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Jaraski says if you use them, it's important to remember... Sugar is sugar. Any honey you drizzle on your breakfast counts toward your daily added sugar total, which the American Heart Association says should be no more than 100 calories a day for women and 150 calories for men. The upside to honey is it has a more powerful flavor profile. Although a teaspoon of honey has slightly more calories than a teaspoon of sugar, it's also sweeter and more flavorful, so a little bit goes a long way. The same goes for molasses and maple syrup. In some baking, you can use 
any one of those ingredients to help you actually reduce the amount of added sugar because those sweeteners actually have additional flavors, therefore allowing you to use less sugar overall, but still have a good flavor. In other news, when you go see a healthcare provider, you might get blood tests to check for many things, including your hemoglobin. Your doctor may test your hemoglobin as part of a complete blood count during a routine medical exam to monitor your general health and to screen for a variety of disorders, such as anemia. Your doctor may also suggest a hemoglobin test if you're experiencing weakness, fatigue, shortness of breath, or dizziness. Now, if you've been diagnosed with anemia or other diseases, your doctor may use a hemoglobin test to monitor your condition and guide treatment. A lot of information from a little bit of blood. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, have you ever had any uh, numbness or tingling in your fingers? No, I have not. You know, people who have a condition called carpal tunnel syndrome have numbness and tingling in those fingers, and they may have some associated weakness, sort of have the dropsies. You can't can't hold things up. Okay. And it occurs when the median nerve, that's the, the big nerve of the three that's on the palm side of your wrist, gets squeezed in there. Okay. And when you squeeze a nerve, it uh, stops working over time. And the symptoms of carpal tunnel are weakness, tingling, numbness, pain sometimes uh, at night. There are certain people who are at more risk for getting carpal tunnel than others. People who have a little bit of a smaller canal down there to Mm. begin with. There's not as much room for their nerve. There are certain health conditions that can lead to carpal tunnel syndrome. And you know what the other one is? No. Being a girl. Oh, man. Smaller. (laughs) I get it. Okay. Luckily for those who suffer from carpal tunnel syndrome, treatment options are available. Here to discuss treatment for carpal tunnel syndrome is Mayo Clinic Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Physician, Dr. Jay Smith. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Smith. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dr. Smith, good to have you. Now, we talked, we sort of covered virtually all of the the symptoms of carpal tunnel, but how do you, when you see a patient with those symptoms, how do you nail down the diagnosis? Well, really, it's just by taking a good history and getting the history of the symptoms that you described. There are some physical exam maneuvers that are done to provoke the symptoms of the nerve irritation. Uh, And then after that, it's really a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning uh, carpal tunnel syndrome is basically those constellation of symptoms and signs, the numbness, the tingling, the weakness in that distribution, and then making sure it's not something else, like arthritis in the wrist, like a pinched nerve in the neck or something else. The reason why women would have it more is because their wrists are smaller? That is one of the theories in terms of the size of the wrist, because it is a space issue. It's all about real estate. It pays off sitting next to these doctors. (laughs) So what is it? Can you explain that maneuver to us that might uh, exacerbate the symptoms if you have carpal tunnel? Well, one of the the provocative maneuvers, as we say, is to just uh, simply have your elbows on the table with your wrists bent so that your wrists are in a flexed position and your fingers are pointing towards the table. And this uh, increases the pressure in the carpal tunnel which is the area of the wrist that the nerve and the tendons run through. And by increasing the pressure in the tunnel, if there's limited uh, space to begin with, the nerve will start short-circuiting, essentially, and that's when you get the numbness and tingling sensation. So reproduction of the pain, numbness, or tingling with this maneuver is one of the maneuvers we use to diagnose carpal tunnel syndrome. 
Causes, we sort of uh, talked about those. Uh, overuse is one that I think I forgot to mention. Mm-hmm. But that's probably one of the more common causes today, isn't it? People at the computer all day long? Yeah, it's thought to be repetitive wrist motion because when we use our fingers a lot, whether it's for playing an instrument or using a computer keyboard, the tendons are moving in and out of the hand through the carpal tunnel, and that creates friction. And that friction over time can create some uh, tissue growth and scar tissue that then take up space which then cause the nerve to have its own problems. Yeah, there are many treatment options. One is if you do have an identifiable risk factor, you try to modify it. So it might just be simply modifying your workplace, modifying what you do temporarily to let the tendons swelling reduce. Certainly splinting has helped some people where we rest the wrist in a comfortable position that reduces pressure in the carpal tunnel. Many patients have uh, specifically bad symptoms at nighttime and it interferes Mm -hmm. with their sleep, which doesn't make Mm -hmm. anyone happy. And so there are many people that do well just splinting their wrists at nighttime. When those interventions don't work, cortisone injections into the carpal tunnel are are tried and true. Uh, Many people will try one or more cortisone injections. The idea there is that the cortisone shrinks the tendons, it shrinks the inflammation around the nerve, creates more space for these things to live and thereby reducing the symptoms. And those Does that hurt? Mainstay. Um well, not really. I mean, uh, there are def- different ways to do the carpal tunnel injections, but you know, they're they're generally not much more than a flu shot for most people in terms of the pain. So are you able to do less surgical intervention than before? Was that usually where people ended up and now you're able to not do that at um, I think that the, the, the standard of care treatment is still the activity modification and, um, and splinting and cortisone injections. And then when that doesn't work and people are considering surgical interventions, that's where we have some novelty in terms of new treatments, ways to do the surgery when someone has that whatever we're doing is not working and we might need to have a surgery. Isn't it also true that you want to do the surgery before there's actual muscle weakness? Correct. I mean, you can. it is a nerve problem, and the longer that the nerve is compressed, the more damage that can be done to the nerve, and the nerve may not recover once the pressure is relieved. And uh, certainly uh, the, the last thing that gets affected for most people is the muscles, and that's always the last thing to recover or may not fully recover. And then if people have superimposed problems like diabetes or people who are older, their nerves are generally not as healthy anyway, and they may not bounce back as much after a successful surgery. What are some of the new treatments that you mentioned? So yeah, let's assume yeah. we've tried all the easy stuff and none of it's worked. We've right. still got the problem. So the, the, the standard of care surgical treatment is really to cut the ligament. The carpal tunnel is, a, is, a, is basically a space in the wrist. It's formed, the walls of it are formed by your wrist bones and then a ligament that goes over the roof called the transverse carpal ligament. And it is a space issue. So what happens in the surgery is you cut down to the ligament and you cut the ligament and unroof it. And then the, the tendons and the nerve have enough space to live and the symptoms usually improve. That, everything doesn't just fall out? I mean, yeah. you don't need that ligament? Yeah, the ligament will usually um, scar in. So it'll, it'll, it'll kind of reform in a looser position than it used to be. Um, and, uh, and there are other uh, tissues that are holding the tendons and the nerve in place so they don't necessarily bowstring out, which is you know, what you're referring to. And the traditional uh, surgical procedure is an open procedure, meaning where a surgeon would dissect down from the palm through a, an incision into the palm through the fat and the tissues in the palm down to the ligament to find the ligament and then cut it. And that was uh, really the only way it would be done for a long time until the endoscopic techniques were developed and now ultrasound-guided techniques, which you know, we can discuss, of course. Yeah, so tell us about that. So the two ways, the two surgical options are open surgery, where you actually see the ligament as you're cutting it. The other option is to put a scope in there and cut it with the uh, with the scope. The results is good with that? Yeah, the, uh, in, uh, the endoscopic procedures, as, as you mentioned, really through either one small incision in the wrist or two small incisions, you get a scope in the carpal tunnel and you cut the ligament from inside out. 
The results are generally the same at one year for the endoscopic and open, but the endoscopic people in general will have a little bit of a faster recovery due to the lack of uh, as much trauma. It's a smaller incision. They recover a little faster. Uh, at the end of the year, they're about the same. All right, and then your new technique. So uh, in the in the past uh, 10, 15 years, ultrasound, as we've talked about on this show before, has really progressed, and we now have the ability to see all of the structures in the carpal tunnel uh, under ultrasound, including the structures that our surgical colleagues are, are worried about cutting when they're doing surgery. So now we have the ability to place a device into the carpal tunnel through a small incision in the forearm. It's a 4 to 5 millimeter incision in the forearm. Put it into the carpal tunnel under ultrasound, making sure it's placed uh, appropriately to cut the ligament while avoiding anything we don't want to hit. And then uh, we blow up balloons. This device basically is a 4 millimeter diameter tube that has balloons on either side. You activate the balloons. They push everything out of the way. And then the knife becomes active, and by a lever, you can activate a knife that comes up and cuts the ligament. So the idea of this is you can see everything. You put it in small, and then when you're in the tunnel, you get big, push everything out of the way, cut the ligament, and then pull out. And, uh, and that's the procedure. It's an ultrasound-guided procedure uh, to perform carpal tunnel release. Takes how long? About 10, 15 minutes. And Done. it's quicker recovery? What's the benefit of doing yeah, it this way? Yeah, so the, the, the specific device we're talking about just came on the market in December. Now, there have been other ways to do ultrasound-guided carpal tunnel release that have been published in previous years. So what I'll tell you is based on those data. And, yes, there's a prospective study done by a single surgeon who compared the open versus the ultrasound-guided technique. He did all of them. He's well-versed in both and found that the patients he did with ultrasound guidance did have a faster recovery, less pain medication, faster recovery, faster return to activity. So similar advantages to the endoscopic, but you don't need all that endoscopic equipment, and this can be an office-based procedure. Wow. There you go. New way to treat carpal tunnel syndrome, if you ever get it. PM&R physician Dr. Jay Smith, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, hospice care. We'll learn how and when to seek out the help of a hospice program. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, if you or a loved one has a, a, a terminal illness, a life-threatening illness, and you maybe you've exhausted all the treatment options, another option that you might want to consider, hospice care. Now, unlike other medical care, the focus of hospice isn't, it isn't to cure the underlying disease. The goal of hospice is to provide and support the highest quality of life possible for whatever time remains, and that's just what all of us would want for a loved one. There is a myth that patients should be in their last days or hours of life before being ready to discuss hospice, but early referrals to hospice can help patients and their families benefit from many of the services that are eligible at the end of life. Here to discuss hospice care is Mayo Clinic Palliative Care Specialist, Dr. Jacob Strand. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Strand. It's great to see you. Oh, a delight to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dr. Strand. So uh, you are a palliative care specialist. Tell us what that means. Yeah, so palliative medicine is a field, uh, palliative medicine and palliative care is a field that's really sprung up over the last uh, 15 to 20 years, at least uh, for most patients and their families hearing about it. It's a medical subspecialty that really focuses on taking care of patients with serious illness. And when we say taking care, a lot of the things that you've already said, focusing on quality of life, so that might mean managing someone's pain during a cancer diagnosis. It might mean helping to treat their shortness of breath if they have emphysema or other lung problems. Uh, it also might mean... Uh, 
um, helping patients to come to grips with what a serious illness means for themselves or their family members. And importantly, it works with a patient's other doctors to help provide the best care possible at any age or any stage of a diagnosis of a serious illness. And that's the part that maybe people are confused yeah. by, is the that working with all the physicians. Right. Well, I hear a lot that um, it's sometimes from my colleagues, uh, my physician colleagues, that a patient isn't ready for palliative care. And I think what that gets to is another myth, is that palliative care is somehow the same as hospice, which is somehow the same of end-of-life care. And I think what can be helpful to note is that palliative care uh, is appropriate for anyone going through a serious illness, even for those patients who might have a curative illness that you know just gives them a lot of pain or suffering as they're going through their treatments. And, and that job of ours is really to help a patient achieve the goals as they identify them for themselves and their families. You hear me saying a lot about serious illness when I talk about the world of palliative care, and that's because it's really not restricted to patients with a terminal illness. Uh, and I think that's an important distinction that uh, more of our patients can benefit as we expand that definition. So uh, palliative care is sort of a general term, and then mm -hmm. underneath that are the categories of hospice care and right. comfort care. Is that correct? Yeah. So there's a lot of terms out there. So palliative care, I think it's important to know, too, that there are specialists who do palliative care like myself. So I work in the hospital and see patients at the request of uh, other colleagues in the hospital. I also see patients in the clinic. Uh, there are some communities that have palliative care programs that are attached to um, home care programs, so sometimes patients come into contact that way. Um, but it's 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 really about um, what are the patients that may benefit from that. So that's palliative care as a specialty form, but actually a lot of people do palliative care. Um, my surgical colleagues do palliative care. My cancer physicians do palliative care. They do palliative care in their work because what they're working on is helping to improve a patient's overall quality of life. Some patients benefit, actually all patients benefit from those basic skill sets, and some patients need a subspecialty skill set, which is one of the things that I provide. When we think about hospice, the way that I look at that realm is that it's a type of palliative care applied to patients who might have a more advanced form of an illness. So we often think in terms of a terminal illness. That's in large part because I think the question that comes up is, well, is my, does my insurance cover that? And that's because mm -hmm. it's really defined by Medicare. So hospice is, is really a form of palliative care that is meant for patients in the last six months of their life. So that definition becomes important because it's a, it's a certification. But I, I think it's also really critical is that most of us don't know what that means. So mm -hmm. most of us don't have that crystal ball. And so it's not so clear cut. And so I think uh, for patients who are worried that if I sign on to hospice care, you know, all I've got is six months and then that's it, um, it's, that's not so clear for us. It's, we have many patients who have been on hospice for longer than six months because they've done so much better. And some patients who, um, who uh, have a much shorter time on hospice because their illness is advancing so quickly. That other term you brought up is comfort care, and I think that's get, that gets brought up a lot in the hospital settings. And the way that I look at comfort care is comfort care is anything that helps enhance a patient's comfort, period. We make it real simple. Um, it doesn't have to mean uh, things that are taken away from a patient or we're only doing X, Y, and Z. It's really what can we do as physicians, nurses, other caregivers to help provide comfort for that patient. Uh, and so a lot of patients who are getting uh, hospice care are receiving comfort care, but they might also be getting antibiotics for a pneumonia that's making them uncomfortable. So I think um, some of it is uh, it's definitions that we've made more complicated as healthcare providers. And so uh, that's how I think about it is in those more simple terms. So in general, though, if uh, you have to certify that in your opinion, mm -hmm. uh, somebody qualifies for hospice if you expect them to live six months or less. That's right. But if they live longer, Medicare continues to pay. 
Yeah, and, and that really gets to the role of the hospice team in figuring out what that patient's need uh, is and what their need is going to be uh, as their life continues. Uh, and so what it means is it's not we certify you for hospice and you never get seen again. The goal is that there is a team approach who follows that patient very closely, um, whether that's in the home or in another setting. And if that patient improves initially because they're getting extra help at home and they're getting extra care, that's fantastic. That's not actually a bad thing. If their overall disease, though, is continuing to worsen, and there are ways that physicians and nurses measure that, patients can stay on hospice beyond that initial six-month period. And who's on your team? So a hospice team is really made up of um, a core group of nurses who are certified in hospice care, uh, physicians uh, as, uh, say, a hospice medical director. There's always a hospice medical director. And there may be, in big hospices, other physicians who do a lot of work in the home with patients. There are um, pharmacists who do a lot of work with medications to make sure that patients are getting the right medications for them to give them the best relief of their symptoms and the best quality of life. There are social workers who can help patients figure out some of the complicated financial arrangements that exist. You know, a lot of times I have patients who are trying to decide, what do I do with the family business now that I know my life is going to be shorter? Um, what kind of uh, what kind of wills do I need to have in place? What other arrangements should I make to take care of my family uh, in these last months? And social workers can be really helpful with that. We also know that it's not just about the physical care or even the you know, psychosocial support, but there's a lot of spiritual needs that patients ask for, and so chaplains are a really important part of a hospice team to help provide spiritual care. You mentioned a hospice center, yeah. uh, but now aren't more people um, going around the route that they can go to a hospice center or you can hospice at home, or has that always been an option for yeah, patients? That's a great question. Because yeah, so sometimes people think that hospice is a place, and hospice is, the way I look at it, is it's a service and it's an insurance benefit. So it's actually both. Mm-hmm. Um, and that service can be brought to patients in any care setting. So many patients say they want to be at home, so hospice can come to your home. Uh, Many patients, though, that's really hard for them, or they don't want to be in their home in their last months of life, or they want to take the burden away from their family, and so there are skilled nursing facilities or nursing homes where hospices can provide care there, too. Um, People say, well, why do I need a hospice if I've also got a skilled nursing facility? And I think Mm -hmm. one of the pieces there is that there are the more eyes you can put on a patient, uh, the hope is that we give them better care uh, because we're all attending to different needs that they may have. There are also, you mentioned hospice facilities. So for some patients who don't want to be in a nursing home and they don't want to be at home, uh, depending on what part of the country you're in, what part of the state you're in in that area, there are sometimes residential hospice houses. And what that is is really a more home-like environment where there are specially trained hospice nurses there 24-7. And that becomes important because a lot of people ask the question, well, if I get hospice involved, are they always going to be at my house? And sometimes they want that, and sometimes they want them out of their house. And and really, in its purest form, when it's at home, it's not hospices. uh, The hospice isn't there 24-7, so that's what a residential facility would be. So lots of options. We're so grateful for you being here and also the families that are touched by everything that you and your colleagues do. It's a wonderful thing. And thanks so much for being here to explain it to us. Palliative care specialist. Jacob Strand, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.